Hi, it's Steve Albrecht, and welcome to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast. This podcast is sponsored by Library 2.0 and produced by the founder of Library 2.0, Steve Hargadon. So my topic for this half hour, and we're taping this in August of 2022, is the recent stabbing incident involving Salman Rushdie, a tragedy at a lot of levels, which I'll talk about. Uh, I met Salman Rushdie at a book signing for his book, Joseph Anton, back in the fall of 2011. And I told him back then, this was at UCSD in San Diego, uh, how brave he was for the fatwa that he had been living under since 1989. We'll talk about the incident and what it means to library people in terms of safety and security. So by now you have probably seen the stabbing incident that happened with Salman Rushdie. It happened at Chautauqua Institute in upstate New York. And during this event, um, a male came and stabbed him and uh, several times, uh, blinded him in one eye, we've been told by his agent, Andrew Wiley, and also um, damaged his liver and uh, damaged a nerve in his arm. He also, the suspect also injured the moderator uh, got him stabbed I think in the face as well or struck him in the face and so suspects in custody and you can read about him at your own if you uh, look online for that situation but I wanted to see if we could talk about in this discussion here that library security for these types of events where we bring in somebody who is not only high profile but has some controversy attached to him like Mr. Rushdie does um, agree with his writing or disagree or agree or disagree with his politics um, he's been faced with this fatwa this this Iranian fatwa death warrant death uh, sentence that uh, was handed down by one of the Ayatollahs back way back in 89 uh, so this man has been living o- over 20 years uh, in British um, um, uh, protection from the Scotland Yard and other detectives and bodyguards and things like that from the British government at some point in time the the fatwa eased although the three million dollar bounty on his head that would have been collected upon his death by someone who had killed him uh it still exists today and and he through you know the evolution of time looked at this and said well i'm going to go back to what would be a normal life in terms of traveling without um, security or traveling more freely to to do my presentations for for my books and so that's what he did in this situation he was giving a speech in chautauqua institute about about books and freedom and and talking about his works and uh, this attacker came out of the crowd and and attacked him with a knife and we look at this situation and we say well there was a cop uh, a local cop uh, from that area chautauqua sheriffs or pd whatever they have up there plus uh, a new york state uh, trooper and they were at the scene and they uh, get the suspect into custody and so my my disagreement with that approach is typical of any kind of assassination or attempted assassination or attempted assault, attempted murder like we have seen around the world and certainly in our country for a political figures or elected figures or, or celebrities or, or people who are well known is that um, sometimes the cops are there but not close enough and sometimes the cops are not close enough to stop an actual attacker. So it is a failure in security as you can certainly imagine if you're thinking about bodyguards and how they do their work, when the attacker gets onto the stage or onto the dais or, or backstage or up to where the talent or the celebrity person or the singer or whoever it is is, is talking or performing or singing uh, and makes physical contact with them, that's a failure. And so when I look at this incident with Mr. Rushdie and I think, how could this have happened where these guys, the two cops, were not close enough to stop this person from coming on stage and arming him? 
so that's that's issue number one. The the other issue is the Chautauqua Institute. When you look at at the people that that uh, run this place, they said we're quote we're very proud of our security and the things that we have done. There was some sort of screening process uh, that that uh, happened there, but the suspect had a ticket and was able to roam the grounds. Uh, but there was not a screening process, uh, as far as I know, at the door for weapons. And so I think if you're having somebody in from, from you know, a local library um, event where you're having a local author who wrote a book about gardening, you certainly don't need to screen people with a metal detector at the door. I'm not being ridiculous about it. But if you're having somebody who is an international figure who has had a death warrant on his head for 30 years, then I would say at a minimum that a metal detector is necessary at that that facility and if you were having it at the library. So there are certain events that you know as you see in the media and you look in your own experience and you see in your own community that draw negative attention to a library space uh, in terms of these protests that we've seen about banned content and about about parents and other people who are against you know uh, gay lesbian um, material things like that transgender materials where they come up and they protest and they actually disrupt the reading or disrupt the the performance disrupt what's going on inside the library this should not happen so the the biggest thing I always think about in security is access control. How do we keep people out who do not belong in our facility, no matter what the facility is, if it's a retail store or an office or a library, when they are there to be disruptive, to threaten people, to harm people, to ruin the, the time that, that folks are trying to have in that event. And it's ridiculous uh, when I see these things happen where we don't get the police involved early enough, we don't get... Um, local security consultants, and this is not a commercial for me, I don't do that type of work, typically. Uh, we don't get local security consultants involved. We don't get people involved that can talk about what the uh, scope of the event is and what potential problems, and that's parts I do do in my work. Uh, that is part of my security consulting work. How do we look at an event and say, what are the potential issues that are, are faced when we bring a busload of kids? Uh, let's say fourth graders into the into the library space, and there's 150 of them in the library. How do we keep track of all those kids so none of them wander away or get hit by a car, or disappear in some other way, or or get you know touched by some stranger out from the street or whatever happens to be? How do we protect our library space and our library employees when we bring in? Uh, situations where there is a lot of people and we may not have enough staff and so do we have to hire private security do we have to uh, make a more uh, stringent plea with local police to provide more than one cop or more than one sheriff's deputy we see this a lot in situations where we say let's hire uh, PD or sheriffs to work on duty in in full uniform with their cars and equipment and things but we pay as you know part of the contract we pay to the the PD or the sheriff for their for their rates, and you know I've seen this in uh, a project I work on in Las Vegas where uh, there was a certain uh, entity in Las Vegas that wanted to arm their security officers, and I said, well, we've got access to the Las Vegas Metro Police Department. Let's let's see what their rates are, and it turned out it was pretty reasonable to hire Las Vegas PD officers to work weekends and nights on this particular location in uniform with their full equipment to do their jobs as necessary without having to arm or hire security. And so if you look and say, can we, and I saw this in San Diego when I was there, we would have um, uh, cops in my department um, that would uh, work um, on duty, but but off duty as in, you know, a, a 
overtime project for the Jewish community for High Holy Days. So they had had uh, ceremonies and and events happening around the city where there was concerns about uh, attacks on Jewish facilities, and so they would hire cops in San Diego PD to work work those events, and that worked out quite well. There's a deterrence factor. There's a visibility factor. There's an idea that that we send the message to perpetrators that we are on this and vigilant and have thought about it before their arrival. But I go back to the idea that when we think about high notoriety, high potential for protests or acts of violence, that we have to change the security posture for the event. And even if it's happening at a library, that includes we bring in, for example, private security to do uh, metal detectors at the door. We're looking for things that could harm folks, which is not just firearms, but in this case, it would be would be gun, uh, knives. So it's not just guns. So Mr. Rushdie's reputation has preceded him to the degree where where they didn't consider, after all this time, the 30-plus years, that the threat factor was high enough, and of course they were wrong. And this goes back to me not being a Monday morning quarterback, but me being a security paranoid guy about these things where I'm trying to protect as many people as, as, as best as I can in these situations, is to say, look, the past is no predictor of the future when it comes to things like this where you say, well, the heat's off, the intensity of the situation is not as it was 30 years ago, so we can stop being vigilant. The problem, as you well know, in a lot of things in life, is we can't stop being vigilant about a lot of things. You can't say, well, I'm pretty sure my my three-year-old knows not to run across the street, so I won't hold his or her hand as we're walking in the streets because I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure that in the past he or she hasn't ran into the streets, so they probably won't do it again this time. That's ridiculous as well, as you know. When you look at what we want kids to do and what we want them to know is we have to be vigilant until they are at the point of maturity where they can make their own good, safe decisions. So if I had to do this event, the Chautauqua Institute event with Mr. Rushdie again, I would, if I was planning it, I would certainly have the metal detector in place and I would have armed security or armed officers running the metal detector. Metal detectors are of no value if there's nobody who's at least one person is armed who can watch over the proceedings. We see this in court courthouses and where there's shootings and things. Uh, these people are trying to shoot past the the um, metal detectors to get into the courthouse. At least one person, not everybody, but at least one person has to be armed who can pay attention to what's happening and stop anybody who is an armed threat. Second thing I would do is I would say, do we have paramedics on standby? We can do the same thing with paramedics and say, we have a large group. Let's say it's for your library, for as another example, where... Um, we're going to invite several hundred uh, people in the community, some of whom are elderly or some of whom have special needs or some of whom have, have physical disabilities or some of whom um, uh, may have a- ambulatory issues and we're ha- holding this thing you know, you know, on a third floor of, a, of the building or in the basement of the building, something like that, where we say we have paramedics on standby, which we pay them to sit and make sure that there's a medical response that's immediate. Now, I go to minor league baseball games almost every every day out here where I live in Missouri, and there is an on-call paramedics team walking through the crowd all the time, and it's for heat stroke issues and for people that fall and and all kind you know somebody gets hit in the head with a foul ball. All that stuff happens at a ball game. When you look at bringing in paramedics, we see this at high school football games. There'd be an ambulance parked at the other end of the end zone. 
I see this all the time in the high school football games, and even I've seen uh, paramedics at high school basketball games or other gy- gymnastics or other other you know soccer games and things where there's paramedics nearby just in case one of these kids hits their head or falls or or you know has a, a cardiac issue. We can do the same thing in a in a library event that's a, a big you know heavily populated. Um, program where we say we have lots of people here and we wouldn't ord- ordinarily do this because we don't have this number of people in the library but for this situation having paramedics on on standby as part of a you know a paid contract that we would do with them is cheap insurance when you look at these types of incidents you say how would we evacuate worst case scenario there's some kind of protest or disruption somebody throws uh, you know a, a uh, a jar full of paint at the speaker or something like that and people want to leave the facility leave the library safely and quickly and and get out evacuate is there a process that we have thought about where everybody's going to go is there one way in and one way out that that's the only way that they can get in or out which is not effective can we take people through back stairs back back entrances uh, an entrance which is behind the uh, stage or the dais which is which is not marked but the staff knows where it is things like that so when we consider how we evacuate people, the one way in, one way out approach is, is usually the least effective, the most dangerous. We've seen this at concerts. We've seen this in, in events where lots of people get together and there's some sound of gunfire, which may or not, may not actually be gunfire, or there's some sort of a fight or something where people try to get out and they end up trampling on each other. When you look at bringing in somebody into the library that may be high notoriety and have a potential for a violent protest, this person should also, or at least if we're speaking to his or her representatives, this person should also, we should talk to this person about a contract that says you're going to either have to provide your own security, own bodyguards, or you will, we will contract them, or you will pay for that for the contract, or we will deduct your fee or whatever happens to be, or you'll pay for it, something like that, where there is use of private security, private private bodyguards, executive protection detail, who has been trained to know how to do these things, to be hired as part of this process. We may pay for it, or we may require it from the person who is giving the appearance, a per- person's you know event team who, who is showing up. One of the things I also see in large-scale events that happen at libraries is that maybe we have one or two people who have a security function that may have radios, walkie-talkies, but not the rest of the staff who may need them. And so we have staff at entrance doors or at sign-in tables or at registration desks or things like that, and they don't have a radio either. Think about an event that you may have where it's just as important for the staff, especially people who are in position at at, at exits and entrance or registration areas or in um, locations where they need to be uh, at they're at a distance and they need to be in contact with people at the main area that we use radios radios are cheap the the idea that you know you're spending fifteen hundred dollars on a police radio is not necessary you can get these things online or in other locations you know at at, uh, stores that specialize in, in these types of things for fairly cheap and so it's not just a security function to have a radio, but that we have staff that has as many radios as we have need for so that people feel they can reach out in an emergency or even to ask questions about things before situations escalate. That would be similar as if they were using their own cell phone, but these are faster and, and more efficient. So think about 
the radio piece as well. All of this starts with an event plan. You don't have to have it for everything. You're having a, a half dozen five-year-olds coming in or kindergartners, six or seven of those coming into the library. No big deal. Staff can take care of that, certainly. You're having an elected official, appointed official, somebody that has political um, uh, notoriety in the community or international community, someone that has a reputation based on their politics or their, their work as being um, high notoriety, pros and cons for that person, uh, for and against his or her beliefs that other people could show up for and protest. There's been events of previous protests where this person has spoken or have, has lectured or has been there for a book signing or something like that. When that person's going to come to your library, that changes the dynamics for your event plan. It's not just something you say, well, we'll do what we always did. We have to actual actual plan. It's private security. It's law enforcement response. It's hiring law enforcement. It's hiring paramedics. It's using the radios. It's talking about all these things. Maybe it's an outdoor event where heat is a concern and we have to have enough hydration and water for everybody who attends. Maybe there is a, a, an issue where um, the event plan has to incorporate uh, snow or rain. Uh, the event plan has to incorporate uh, a change in the location because we need more space or something's happened where, where we have to be flexible in terms of the, the event plan itself and we're not tied to one thing. That's the only thing we know how to do, but the event plan is a little bit flexible. Then we have kind of a rehearsal. We say several days before this event, this is where we're going to put the dais and this is where security is going to be posted and this is where we're going to have staff at, at certain doors and this is the tables we're going to set up and this is the design of the room if we have some flexibility in terms of the seating arrangement. Is it tables and, and, and you know cocktail tables and, and chairs? Is it round tables? Is it rows? Uh, is it set up in some sort of design which is different than what we usually do? All these things are part of the event plan conversation. I think if we're looking at some um, um, presenter that has some, some uh, notoriety attached to him or her, uh, especially internationally, that we talk to the local police, we talk to the state police, you have some contacts there, you talk to what would be their criminal intelligence unit or what's called special investigations or SIU units, and you would talk to the sheriffs or the PD or the, or the local state police about any advanced threats that they know about. And they say, yes, we've had issues or concerns about this particular person in other parts of the state. We've had issues or concerns that we've heard from colleagues in other states. And you wanna, you wanna know about what those are to prepare for it and get to get their help to prepare for it. And, and we look at these events and say, what do the political winds tell us? W-I-N-D-S, what do the winds, how do they blow for this particular person in this particular event? Is this something we need to postpone? Is this something that we might do better through a, a, a Zoom appearance for this person rather than a live appearance? Is this something that we could do three months from now and maybe the emotional temperature about this particular person has, has ebbed a little bit and made it more reasonable for their, their uh, appearance at our facility? Are we planning for the worst for these things? We're not trying to be nihilistic and, and pessimistic and, and doom and gloom, but we're simply saying, we don't use the past as a predictor of the future to say, well, nothing bad's ever happened in the library, therefore nothing bad's ever going to happen. We say, we have certain plans in place. We have a written event plan, which we have discussed with our staff and with our leadership. If we need that plan to be vetted by the cops, 
or we need to bring in private security, or we're asking the person who is coming to appear to bring their own security, that should be reasonable to say, this is the world we're living in where these things are now necessary, not for everything, but for those particular events where there is an intensity to the subject or the speaker. When I talk about workplace violence prevention and school violence prevention with my clients, which happen to be public sector or private sector or schools, colleges and universities, I say, look at recent events, recent shooting events or recent attacks that happen overseas or in the United States and use those as a guide to say, what are the parallels to what could happen here? We have a similar multi-story building or we have a similar uh, auditorium style or we have much better access control or security than this particular location did and so we feel pretty comfortable that this type of thing wouldn't happen. That's okay. You don't have to say, we're going to put a, a Kevlar dome over the top of the entire building. All you say is, what can we learn from and how can we plan from looking at national and international events, especially related to violence or threats of violence, that have happened and say, what do we learn from those when we apply it to our own facility? One of the things that I have seen a lot in these uh, travel shows is they will hire a local, quote, fixer. And the local fixer, and these are all the travel shows that you and I, you know, enjoy on on uh, Netflix and and you know Discovery Channel and things like that. I'm thinking about Anthony Bourdain and and uh, Phil Rosenthal and people like that that have great programs. They will hire local people that are super knowledgeable about issues and customs and language and money and food and locations and what places to go or not go in certain foreign countries when they're bringing these these talented uh, on-screen people in to do their show. Think about how there is a benefit where you say we hire a local security expert and maybe that's somebody who's retired law enforcement or retired military. Not every military person or retired cop is a security expert, but some of them have that expertise as, as their second career. To say, can you give us a sense of protecting this particular event because you know the lay of the land, you, you're familiar with the issues at hand here, uh, this person's notoriety, and you can look at our facility and help us fill in some of the gaps. That would be good money well spent, I think. I think that all participating staff for that particular situation need to have a briefing to say, we're not trying to scare anybody, we're not trying to make you not want to come to work, we're not trying to make this a not fun event, we're just trying to say, here's some potential possibilities or problem areas or concerns that we have, whether it's kids, or, or evacuation, or the, the it's, this is a nighttime event where people are coming in from all over the community. It's a daytime event where we have a closed group where it's just ticket holders that are coming in. Uh, we, we screen people based on having purchased tickets in advance versus not, things like that, that we talk with the staff, the participating staff, and say, here's some things that we're looking at. Is there anything that strikes you? Anything that you're thinking about as you are going to help us uh, work on this particular event? So the idea of, of Mr. Rushdie's stabbing for me was uh, just a tragedy on so many levels. Besides his obvious injuries, this also, in my mind as a security guy, sends the message to other attackers that it's possible to harm people like him. It's possible to harm authors and, and other folks that come and speak at our bookstores or libraries or, or events, um, things like that. And th this person demonstrated that it is possible. So. Oftentimes we learn lessons in security, especially after the horse has been stolen from the barn, we learn lessons in security after there was a significant event. You think about Ronald Reagan being shot by John Hinckley. That changed the Secret Service's approach to having uh, presidential uh, candidates or presidents coming out into 
public in ways that were really hard to control, like that movement that he made from the from the Hilton Hotel to the limousine. Uh, that stuff doesn't happen anymore. Those are, those are quite controlled how we see presidents or, or presidential candidates, political candidates, um, uh, you know, come out into public areas. That that sort of we hope nothing happens because there's a vulnerable moment here from when the president leaves this particular part of a of a building and gets to the car. Those things don't happen anymore, and that was driven by that event. Another incident which comes to mind is the assassination of uh, former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. He was killed uh, by an assassin with a homemade uh, shotgun in uh, July 8th of 2022. So there was a moment where Mr. Abe was in, a, in loose kind of in-between bodyguards and this attacker came forward and, and, and shot him. So we learn from these events, unfortunately at the point of a sword, unfortunately at the point of a bullet, unfortunately at the the incident that happens where we would say this is this has never happened before or we've never had an issue about this particular security approach or setup and yet it happened so i always look at at things that happened recently as a guideline or indicator of what we don't want to do and to pay attention to those things that were certain gaps that 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 fell apart because people didn't do their jobs or just made assumptions well-meaning assumptions, but wrong assumptions nonetheless about how to handle certain security situations. When I look at the event that happened with Mr. Rushdie and I just think about how it just puts a, 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 a frightening cloak over the concept of free speech and free writing and what people want to do to express themselves whether it's art or music or poetry or novels or other books, and the benefit that people get in libraries and in bookstores and in, in places like the 92nd Street Y in, in New York City where authors come and speak about their work, I would never want that to go away. And I want to think about what we need to do as the providing entities for the platforms for these people to come in to make sure that they are safe and to put some of the demands for their safety onto them as well, not just all for us, whether it's the, the financial cost or at least the conversation to say we need to do some different things than for this particular event to make sure that we're all safe. <clears throat> when I looked at Mr. Rushdie, when I saw him speak, and I talked briefly with him at UCSD, he was speaking at one of the auditoriums there, and he was being protected by the UCSD Police Department, the University of California, San Diego PD, uniformed officers. And also, I know because I know some friends there that they had un uh, uh, um, plainclothes uh, officers, armed plainclothes officers in the crowd as well. And when he was sitting, Mr. Rushdie was sitting at the table to do the autographs for, the, for his Joseph Anton book, which I have, there was a cop sitting you know, paying attention to the situation right next to him. It, that cop wasn't 50 feet away or looking at his phone or talking with other people. He was sitting you know, eight inches from Mr. Rushdie as he should have in that particular situation. Because I, I attended that event and it was in <clears throat> 2011 and when he was still under you know, concerns of the fatwa from the Iranian government with my daughter. And my daughter was a college student at that time and I thought you know, when we went to the event, let's see how they handle this security so that we get not only the benefit of his speech and that he can speak, you know, not from behind bulletproof glass or, or you know, in some way which, which prohibits our getting the full experience, but also do it safely. And they did. And so when you look at what you're going to do for your library, 
you may never have this type of notoriety for a, for a speaker or never have this type of notoriety for, for a presenter, author, something like that. But there are lots of people that, that use the library as a platform, and it could be elected officials or appointed officials. It could be national politicians. It could be state politicians. It could be the governor for your particular state. It could be, it could be uh, people that are authors that are not well-known at all but controversial, and then authors that are very well-known and controversial, and some that would draw protesters and some that would not. And so I think you look at each of the situations where you bring people in, with confidence and with an assertion that we can protect them and protect our patrons and our staff and the facility. But we do it with a careful eye and we say, what do we need to do to make this a safe event for everybody? What do we need to do to make this a safe presentation so that we don't allow those types of, of horrific people armed with guns or knives or whatever they want to do with hate to harm folks that want to share their stories and to share their talents? and to create an environment where we have a safe place for people to do these things, a safe place for audience to come and watch, a safe place for the staff overall. So that's gonna require some thought and it's also gonna require an event safety plan. It's not for every situation, but it's for those types of events where there is a potential for controversy, a potential for protest, a potential for violence. And you can figure out pretty well based on who's coming in, which those things may apply. And again, get some advice and help from local law enforcement, state law enforcement, may even call the Department of Homeland Security and get some advice from the feds. Get some advice from qualified uh, security consultants in your community, could be ex-cops, could be ex-military, could be people that have both backgrounds. Um, get some advice from the thought leaders and the leaders in your organization. And also if you're connected to um, a city or a county as part of your library that you have some people there that may have a security function that could perhaps give you some advice too so that you're creating the safest environment for everybody involved. So that's my topic for today. My thanks to the producer of the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast, Steve Hargadon. For more information, visit the Library 2.0 website at library20.com. Until next time, I'm Steve Albrecht, and thanks for listening to the Library Service Safety and Security Podcast.